Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment. Welcome to the latest episode of our new podcast, Principles of Dealership Management with Dr. Jim Weber. During this five-part series, Dr. Weber and editor-publisher Mike Lesseter discuss dealer management best practices based on Weber's 40-plus years working with dealers and manufacturers in the ag, construction, and other industries. In this episode, Dr. Weber discusses cash flow, used equipment, sales mix, and the discipline to shut down new sales to keep your used equipment turns in check. Before we head over to Mike's conversation with Dr. Weber, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Primus by Basic Software, for making this podcast possible. Are you tired of not having the ability to access your business outside of the office? Primus by Basic Software Systems is a web-based responsive software that puts your business in your hands with full access from anywhere, anytime. No limited apps and no other connections required, just internet access. Wouldn't you love to see the data you want with one simple click or tap? With Primus, customize your views to show exactly what you want to see, when you want to see it. And the system's multiple layers of data allow you to go deeper with your information. Primus truly is your business system in your pocket. To learn more, visit www.basic-software.com Primus. Like all our podcasts, you can subscribe via Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. By subscribing, you're alerted when each new podcast is released. Also, be sure to head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Okay, let's get going. Here's part two of Mike Lesseter's exclusive one-on-one interview with Dr. Jim Weber. Let's say that you're speaking to a dealer who's just getting an epiphany on cash flow and hasn't been looking at through the lens properly. What would be the lowest hanging fruit that you would have him go after? The, the easiest, the, not the easiest one. The first one I'd focus on is saying, where, where's your used equipment turn and where's your sales mix? So I'd be, I'd be suggesting to him, if we, as we saw this morning, the average dealership over the last 30 years has had a sales mix, whole goods to total sales of 75%. Never in that 30 year period of time, however, did they have a three times turn. Now I have consistently said, writing for your magazine over the last uh, nine years, consistently wrote in there that if you're going to generate a 75% plus sales mix to total dealership sales, then you better have at least a three times turn to generate the positive cash flow you're going to need to sustain the operation. Yet not once in those 30 years has the average dealership been over three. So the first thing they have to do is say, hey, it's okay to have a high sales mix if you want to skew it up to 80% or 82%, but at the same time, you have to be ratcheting up the used equipment turn. Now, what is that going to require? That's going to require the discipline to shut down new sales. If my used turn falls below my benchmark number, whatever the dealer's benchmark number is, if that number falls below that number, then they have to shut down the new sales. Now, you've been out there a long time. How many dealers out there are going to have the discipline, that's the word, the discipline to shut down new sales until they get the used sales up over whatever that benchmark is? Mine, again, would be at least a three. And it says if that baby drops to 2.9, 2.75, I shut down a new sale. So, Mr. Salesman, don't come to me with another new sale unless you can show me that that unit is sold or it's a cash-out-only deal. Yeah. So then we I, start I wrote there. that down from this morning, those two things. And how often do you see that? What percent? Is it a 1% of the industry is doing that? Is it shutting down the new sales? 1% is a good number. I, let me say this. It would be significantly below 10%. Most, most dealers do not have the discipline to do that. I myself, out of the 25 dealers I work with, probably have one, maybe two dealers out of the 25 that would have the discipline to shut it down. These, these folks are creatures of habit, and they have been so indoctrinated by the manufacturer to get a new equipment sale. And it's also, they, they get this um, 
orgasmic charge out of selling a new combine or a new forage harvester or a new four-wheel drive uh, tractor selling for $400,000. It, it doesn't matter that they didn't make any money or that they have an overvalued use. Their salesmen, in, as well as the dealers, get a fantastic rush selling that new machine when in fact now all of a sudden we've got a two or three hundred thousand dollar use piece of equipment sitting in the back lot overvalued with too much reconditioning in it with an inability to sell it but don't worry we sold the four hundred thousand we got our market share we made the manufacturer happy very few dealers have the discipline to shut down that new unit that scenario little or no profit on it and a bigger headache on the back on the back side and it would have been way better off just walking away from that sale letting the next broke dealer down the road take that unit and break them rather than breaking themselves yeah. question on to the manufacturer dealer end of things and you, it, you were very clear in what you were telling about whether the manufacturer you know sticking with nose in your business it's your business you got to run it right but in practical reality what how would you calibrate the dealer thinking about the manufacturer how they should look at it, despite what pressures they might get. Yeah. And then and I'll ask the same question the other way around. All right, so here's my belief. I, I don't, I don't. when I'm with my dealers and I with my, meet with my clients twice a year as a group, I personally do not like to hear the bashing of the manufacturer from those dealers. And I don't care whether they're John Deere, New Holland, Agco, Case, they've all got the same issues. Their issue is not the manufacturer. Their issue is the management inside their dealership. So talking about the manufacturer is something they're not going to be able to control. My belief is quit expending negative energy on that. Take a look internally, look in the mirror, say, what can I do to manage this business better? Now, my belief, and I made a statement this morning, if anybody in that room thinks that, then this goes right out to the manufacturers. If anybody thinks that the manufacturers care about their business, my belief is that the majority of the people within the manufacturing side literally resent dealers and they resent dealers from the standpoint of making money. Why? Because these are bureaucrats. Like, I get it. They're, they're good people. I mean, they're, they're making their $100,000 a year, $150,000 a year, but it offends them, which is the opposite way they should be thinking. They, they should be saying, I want that John Deere dealer. I want that Case IH dealer to be making a half a million dollars a year or to be taking a bonus of $2 million out of the business. But they're sitting back in their cubbyhole in Racine or in Moline or in Duluth, Georgia or New Holland, Pennsylvania or in Peoria for Caterpillar. And these guys are knocking down 150, 200, whatever. Man, these dealers are making too much money. Let's find a way to reach into their pocket to take it for crying out loud. No, they ought to be encouraging. Make more money. Make more money. How can we get you out there to be a better businessman? There, there, there's Caterpillar's always looked upon their dealers as saying, I want that individual would be the number one profit maker in that business. I look upon Caterpillar as saying, there's a company saying they wanted their dealers to be extraordinarily successful. On the agricultural side, I think there's a, a, a kind of animosity toward their dealers in terms of letting them be extraordinarily successful. I, it's just not right. Now, again, same issue on the market share. Look, I get the manufacturer. They have plants. They have employees employed in these plants. They have to generate market share. But the fact of the matter is, the dealer has to manage his business to maximize the profitability and the cash flow he needs to, to sustain the operation. If, in fact, we were to listen to the manufacturers, my belief is that we wouldn't have any dealers. I mean, we, we still have people within the manufacturing side that think that company stores are a good idea. That's the craziest idea. I mean, everyone that's ever been out there has gone broke. Why? Because they loaded them up with machines and put them in positions where they couldn't manage the business. So they need to look at these deals, and it's partner nonsense. I mean, they've been talking about partners for 30 years. They're my partner, and then they load them up with machinery that they're incapable of selling, uh, and then flooding the market in other markets, in their contiguous dealers, and the same thing, just prostituting the entire marketplace. 
But I get it. But what the dealer has to do is manage his business. Now, we got to give the manufacturer, they have to give the manufacturer a certain amount of market share. But to be going in, I was working with a dealer this year who had a 40% market share. And the manufacturer had written him a letter and said, you have to get to 60%. Well, if that dealer went from 40% market share to 60% market share this year, I will guarantee you this. He will be out of business the following year because there is no way he could maintain that relationship with used equipment to spin out of the system fast enough in that market where he's only had to 40% going to 60. So it can't work. So as I said to that dealer, look, you've got to show the manufacturer you can get from 40 to 46, 47. The following year, you get from 46, 47 to 52, 53. And maybe over a three-year period of time, showing progress. Yes, your market share compared to the other dealers within your region or your state or whatever is relatively low. Okay, I get that. But you're not going to take it from 40 to 60. And for the manufacturer to even ask you to do that, is unconscionable on the manufacturer's part. So there should be, if they're going to be a partner, they should be in there saying, hey, look, we've got to get this market share up. It's a little bit low at 40%. Let's get it to 46. What can I do as a manufacturer to help you get it to 46, 47 this year? We'll get back to Mike and Dr. Weber in a moment, but first I wanted to take a quick second to thank our sponsor, Primus by Basic Software. To learn more about what Primus can do for your dealership, visit www.basic-software.com Primus. I also wanted to take a moment to invite you to join us for the next Dealership Mind Summit. Visit www.dealershipmindsummit.com to learn more and to register. Okay, let's get back to the program and listen in as Mike and Dr. Weber talk about how dealers need to take responsibility to manage their business and focus on the things that are within their control, not things like commodity prices, the manufacturers, and state and federal legislation. They also touch on the failures of company stores and the need for true salespeople to be field marketers. It sounds like your, your response in those peer group meetings is manufacturers going to do what they want to do you can control your response to it and, and how you decide to run it. Total look, I believe that the dealer has a responsibility to manage his business. He has no control over state legislation. He has no control over commodity prices. He has no control of what takes place in Washington, D.C. He has no control of what's coming out of that uh, manufacturer that he's dealing with. What he does have control over is the people that work with him and the way he manages his business. And his focus, 100%, his energy should be directed to what he can control. And he can't control any of those other factors. And he's never going to get ahead of the curve. He's never going to get to 5% profitability. He's never going to get to a three times turn. He's never going to get to a 15% return on assets when he is focused on things that he can't control. And these dealers who want to get on the phone and gossip with one another, complaining about the manufacturer, complaining about commodity prices, look, We've been down before and we've been up before. I've been in the market since the mid 70s for crying out loud. I saw it when the market tanked. This little protracted downturn that we've been in for the last three or four years, this is a cupcake walk. And again, dealers have to get out of their mind what's happened in the past, forget the commodity prices being at $7. What do we have to do? Now, if you show me that I've got salesmen going out there making 25, 30 calls a week, uh, doing the profiling of the, of, of the customers out there, calling on prospects that have no, nobody's called on in the past, that's how they control it. That's how they control a downturn. That's how they control the bottom line profitability. That's how they increase the turn. Not by complaining about the manufacturer. Get over the manufacturer. Get over the things that you can't control. What I tell my people is, look, they come in and they want you to do this. You smile, you shake your head, you patronize them, and then you go merrily on your way and do your job. Don't get sideways. I got dealers who want to go sideways with them and get upside down and scream and yell. This, no, no, forget all that. Yeah. Just treat them nice, respectfully, Say yes and go merrily on your way to managing your business, managing your business. 
quick sideline on the company stores. You had mentioned, I guess I'd, I'd heard two reasons why they, they failed. One was the one that you mentioned, getting loaded up on inventory, and the other, the lack of a dealer principal and someone who cares that deeply about the business. Yeah. Tell me your observations. Absolutely, there were two things. Number one, there was no passion for the business. Again, these were employees of the manufacturer. They put them in there. And again, who did they generally put in as a store manager was their number one salesperson? Who was the number one salesperson in the company store? was somebody who gave away the most equipment. So when you go back in time, all the company stores were were dumping grounds for machinery. When they couldn't load up the dealers any longer, and I don't care whether you go back to the John Deere dealers a thousand years ago or the Case Ice stores where they closed, I mean, officially all but about four stores in 94. And I've trained every one of the store managers in 86, 87, 88 for Case IH. Good people, meant well, but again, they weren't there in terms of managing for profitability. They were there for managing the inventory to move out of the system. And again, there was no thrust of making money. And this goes all the way back to the IH stores back in the, in the early 70s. They moved equipment, but they never made any money. Because again, it was just an ob- and, uh, to get the plants running, to move the machines out from the plant, into company stores, out to farmers. And again, all they do is they prostitute the market and make it difficult for the dealers that were in business. And again, I'm hopeful that people like Klaus who are trying to go to company stores up in Canada know the people running that operation. I wish them well. It's going to be difficult, but we'll see if it works. I haven't seen it work yet. Yeah. You've been talking a lot about the, the same concepts for a number of years and some dealers probably slow to move, but, but keep coming back to, to listen to it. Why do you think we only have 2% field marketers and some of the other um, things that you feel passionate about are, are the solutions? What is keeping our industry from moving ahead to these things at a, at a more quick the, the, Look, I hate to repeat myself and become redundant again. It's a lack of management and a lack of leadership on the part of the dealer. And again, why anybody would want to sit there. I did a survey with my clients, had to be three or four years ago and found, I asked them what percent of their sales force did they feel were truly honest to God field marketers. And again, remember, I'm stratifying the sales force and saying we've got order takers, we got salesmen, we have retail sales consultants, and we have field marketers. And I say, historically, we're sitting at about 2% field marketers, so about one in, there, one in 50. The survey that I ran four or five years ago came out to be about 22% of the salesmen of my 25 dealers. And again, we're talking about five or 600 salespeople. They thought that uh, 22% were field marketers. I happen to think they were extremely generous with that number, but even at 22%, that's extremely low. Now, how are you going to increase the sales, generate the margin, and turn turn the inventory when only one in five of your salespeople are field marketers? So the fact of the matter is, why do I think they've been, been slow to make the change? Because that's their mindset. And I think that's the kind of thing they've been indoctrinated by the manufacturer, just move iron, just move iron, just move iron. And it's a mindset that's up here, move iron. And so we've got order takers out there. The thing that gets me, about this sales force that we have out there. And by the way, as, I'm, as I indicated this morning, I personally have stepped away from sales training with salesmen. I can't stand looking at them. The majority of them are, are order takers. And when you talk about the kinds of things that a modern day uh, salesperson should be doing, and we'll call them a field marketer in here, they think it's heretical to be talking about those kinds of things. I mean, it's just like so far removed from what they're used to. And what they're used to is sitting inside the dealership. So that gets me into one of my pet peeves. How can we have in the year 2019, where we're talking about increasing sales, salespeople sitting inside the dealership waiting for farmers to walk into the dealership to buy a new piece of equipment? Well, maybe it's because the dealer principal or the sales manager grew up that way, and that's the way it was back then. I mean, my belief is those salesmen have to be out on the road making calls, period, end of the story. There should be no equivocation on that whatsoever. So I, I look at that and say, why haven't they made the change? 
I think there's a resistance to change. And one of the things I'll be talking about when we talk about developing culture is you, the number two step that I look at is you have to have an ability to change. And so letting people sit inside the dealership, letting them not make the calls that we should be requiring them to make, letting them not do the customer profiles that we should be asking them to make, wouldn't happen. And it shouldn't happen. Why do they do it? I don't know. And again, the only reason, and it's, again, I had it last night at dinner with a dealer saying, you don't, Jim, you don't understand how difficult it is to find a replacement. I mentioned it two times this morning jokingly. I mean, that is the classical response to an individual that says, when I say to them, why are you keeping a salesperson that has a bad attitude? Why are you keeping a salesperson that is underperforming? Why are you keeping a person that is not going out and working as a team? Why are you keeping a salesperson who's not taking ownership of his used equipment? Why are you keeping a salesperson who's not helping the dealership sell overvalued used equipment, regardless if he brought it in or not? And the, and the answer is, Jim, you don't understand how hard it is to find a replacement for an order taker today. So my, my, my rejoinder is always, you would rather keep a person with a bad attitude? You would, always, you would rather keep a person who underperforms rather than doing your job as a leader and as a manager and going out there and finding replacements. That does it for part two of Principles of Dealership Management with Dr. Jim Weber. Thanks again to Premus by Basic Software for sponsoring this series. Be sure to listen in next time when Dr. Weber continues the discussion of getting rid of people who aren't meeting expectations or are not up to your standards. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt. Thanks for listening.